Hi, I'm Brian Jackson. In this podcast, which is really about survival, both spiritual and emotional, each week we look at the lies we're uncovering and the truths we are constantly discovering that help us to extract the splinters of society from our minds. This podcast is about music, justice, and everything in between. This is Pieces of a Man. Welcome to Pieces of a Man. I'm Brian Jackson, one half the duo of Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. And this week, with Keith Lamar as my co-host, we look in on music and justice in America and the intricate relationship they share. Keith is calling in from death row at the Ohio State Penitentiary in solitary confinement for over 27 years, convicted while in prison for a crime several witnesses have testified he did not commit. Keith, why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself? Hello, everybody. I'm Keith Lamar. As Brian mentioned in the introduction, I'm a death row prisoner in the state of Ohio. In the latter part of 2018, the Ohio Supreme Court, after 25 years of litigation, issued an execution date in my case, designating the 16th of November, 2023, as the day I would be legally murdered by the state. It's important to say that I'm innocent of the crimes for which I was convicted. I'm joining Brian in this conversation about justice in America to hopefully shed some light on how the criminal justice system actually operates. As I share hope and aim to spark a deeper dialogue about race and what it means to be black in a country that seems hell-bent on destroying us. We'll also be talking about the unifying thread of music and how it has helped us hold on to the most important pieces of ourselves. It's the title, Pieces of a Man. Thanks for listening. This call is originating from an Ohio correctional facility and may be recorded and monitored. Thank you, Keith. And I just want to say how happy I am that we finally got this podcast off the ground. How you doing? I'm doing good, brother. Happy to have you here to help me co-host this first episode of Pieces of a Man. Likewise. So why don't we get right on into it? Well, here we are. Post July 4th. Seems like we've made it through another one. This uh, particular Independence Day. Uh, Probably more apocalyptic than most, but the show must go on. And so it did. It's funny, it used to be the best way to get yourself killed on July 4th was to hop in your car. Uh, Statistics showed that uh, July 4th was the the day where most automobile accidents occurred in the United States. I think that's probably been supplanted since then by the attending of large public gatherings without right. a mask. But hey, it's Independence Day. You know what I mean? No, you can't stop people from celebrating their liberty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that that sense a little ironic but, uh, tone right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm being a little facetious because, you know, of course, in 1776, we the people meant a certain group of people. Not, not, not as many people. And it still mean, I think, a certain group of people because only a certain small segment of society are truly free, fully free. You know, you might be free physically if you're black. You might be free physically if you're indigenous from indigenous places. You might live on a reservation somewhere and 
considered free because you live there, but I'm talking about economically and in and, and, and all the other ways that it really matters. There's only certain people in the society who are allowed to be fully free, and that's how it was in 1776. So, yeah, I, I think uh, um, people risking their life to celebrate the 4th of July, I think is ironic. It really is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is, and, <laughs> especially when it's us, you know. Yeah, 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 especially when it's us. But, of course, you know, black people, I mean, I grew up not even really understanding. Only thing I knew about the 4th of July that I would be able to get uh, a hamburger and some hot dogs and we'd be able to pop some fire off some firecrackers. That was fun as a kid. And I think that's the kind of uh, sinister part about it, that as a kid, you, you know, uh, involve all this fun with it. And I don't even, even understand or even have any, it's a happy childhood memory of mine, even to this day. Yeah. And I'm 51 years old. Of course, I know now what I didn't know then, that black people weren't even free in 1776. And that that holiday never was never meant for us. And yet, coming up, we were celebrated as if it was our freedom that was being celebrated and didn't even realize that that wasn't the case. I think Frederick Douglass probably said it best when he, uh, when he uh, addressed that um, all-white audience in, in Rochester, New York. Um, in 18, oh, yeah, yeah. 1852, July 5th, 1852. I, I told you yeah, before, yeah. I wish I could have been there to see the looks on their faces. Uh, I guess the best way to describe <laughs> yeah. it would have been shock. <laughs> I mean, yeah, man, I don't think a lot of people, I'm going I'm to I'm try to post that on my website, but I don't think a lot of people are hip to this um, particular speech you referenced. And people now, by now, are hip to Frederick Douglass, who he is, and and what he stood for and whatnot. But that speech right there is probably one of the most powerful speeches in the canon, man. Uh, I'm talking about in literature, period. I was going to say in the 19th century, but I think in general, when you're talking about, uh, because I, I don't know why they even called him there. And I think he has that, you know, why why am I here? That, y- y'all trying to mock me? <laughs> I think that's one of the things he said in, in his opening remarks. Yeah. You know, they invited him to speak at this uh, elaborate occasion. Yeah. To, you know, I guess to come and stroke their egos. And um, he really did a number on them, though. I, that's one of my favorite pieces of writing of all time. I'm sorry I came yeah. to it so so late in life, but when I picked it up. Oh, were you? Ah, man. I had to be in my early 30s, man, when I, when I finally got around to it. Yeah, I was, yeah. I was with my parents. Because we used to do the July Fourth thing. I mean, not that we were big, you know, fans of it, but it was just it was a day off, and so we mm-hmm. just quite naturally we would we would all get together. Um, yeah. And I happened to see this speech, and I was like, "Yo, check this out!" And I, I started reading passages from it, and the more I read, the more it became like an oratory. I guess maybe I kind of maybe the spirit of Frederick Douglass jumped into me. And, you know, I really passionately delivered this speech. Um, and, yeah. and from that time on, every July 4th, my parents would always say, Brian, read that speech. Especially when the, when the fireworks were going off and, and uh, the music was, you know, grand old flag or whatever it is, Star Spangled Banner and all this other kind of stuff was playing. Right. Ironically enough, that reminded us to read that speech. Uh-huh. And so it kind of became a family tradition that I'm, I'm hoping when every year, huh? Every every year, and I'm hoping when the twins what about get a, your kids. Did you read it? Did I did. You read it to your kids. I I right, did. So they didn't have to wait until they were thirty years old. 
exactly, so, man. Uh, I'm hoping a lot yeah, of things yeah, they don't have to good. wait till they're 30 years old to find out, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was 20, I, I think I was 20, 19 or 20, I, I probably was 20 years old. I had just came to prison. And of course, you know, I, I knew who George Washington was, who Abraham Lincoln was. I exactly. went to high school with John F. Kennedy, so I knew who he was, but had never heard of Frederick Douglass. I heard of Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, right. uh, in passing. But I never heard of Frederick Douglass and, and uh, one, I think it was Black History Month, or one of those occasions where you know we were allowed to go to the library. And I was digging through a dusty box marked Black History and found him. And it was this picture, man, that picture of him staring at me like daring you to read. I dare you to read this book. You know, <laughs> that's how I kind of took it. My bondage, my freedom. Yeah. And in that book is an extract of, uh, this speech that you referencing, and um, yeah, it had a powerful impact on me. The way he put his words together, the way he, and it was real dignified. Yeah, it had a big impact on me. Twenty I, years old, yeah. I think I, I think I'm gonna read a little bit of it. Um, yeah, that's cool. How's that? Okay. Yeah. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? Would to God, both for your sakes and ours, that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then my task would be light and my burden easy and delightful. But such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought forth light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Go where you may, search where you will, 
roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world. Travel through South America. Search out every abuse. And when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation. And you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. Well, <laughs> I, there's not much to add, to be honest. Um, you know, he basically said it for, for, for that time, and he said it for this time, I believe. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to, to see too many differences. Um, one, of the, the, one of the only ones is that uh, it was... I mean, the main difference was that it was, uh, it, it was 11 years before the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. But aside from that, mm-hmm. I mean, there seems to be very little that actually changed. I think I think that's what laid the ground for the emancipation. I think that's what Frederick Douglass was working towards, and because this speech is actually a setup, basically, <laughs> and convicting them away for him. I think to convict these people in their spirit, and that was what was so uh, masterful about how he how he did it, how he kind of you know uh, applauded them for their feats, for their great feats, uh, mm. overcoming oppression mm. and all these various things that they were so proud of and then, you know, you know, kinda convicting them, you yeah. know, you know, and kinda putting them in a position where either they have to admit to being hypocrites or they have to think a little deeper about what this uh, uh occasion represented. And what about you? I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing one of your favorite passages. Yeah, uh I mean the whole speech is 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 um uh, powerful, obviously, but um uh, when you're talking about how a lot of it is relevant to the present day, I just read this passion. He said, what? Am I to argue that it is wrong to make men brutes, to rob them of their liberty, to work them without wages, to keep them ignorant in their, of their relations to their fellow men, to beat them with sticks, to flay their flesh with the lash, to load their limbs with irons, to hunt them with dogs, to sell them at auction, to thunder their families, to knock out their teeth, to burn their flesh, to starve them into obedience and submission to their masters. Must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? No, I would not. Have better employment for my time and strength than such arguments would imply. And so this is the same thing that we are being asked to argue now, you know, that, that you, they, they passing laws now that it's wrong to choke a restrained man to death. You know, after the choking, after kneeling on George Floyd and Eric Gardner, and now all of a sudden they had the bright idea that it's wrong, and they asking black people to, you know, accept this as progress. You know, and, it, and it's, just, it's just amazing that, you know, almost 167 years ago, he was, he was saying, this is it's pointless. If I have to convince you that it's wrong to treat other human beings like animals, then we are beyond the pale, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And you that, know, and so that's one of the things that I really, really like about the speech that he calling them the humanity to the table. Right. Yeah. Like you like can't be ignorant of this. No, you can't be ignorant. How, how can you? How can you possibly be ignorant to treating or being indifferent to um, people being treated like animals? Yeah. It's the same thing to today. Yeah. You know, when you think, look at how this officer killed George Floyd, 
how he just so casually did that. With his hands in his pocket. On TV, in broad daylight. And we pulled to argue, hey, this ain't right. Who, who looking at that don't know that that's wrong? And why do we have to argue that? Right. So that's what Frederick was saying. Right. It's sad, man, that here we are in the 21st century and we still being made to argue that this is not how you're supposed to treat human beings. This is not how people are supposed to be treated in a civilized society. And he was telling those people, either you, like Malcolm said, practice what you preach or preach what you practice. And that was so cold about that, that delivery. And it's the same thing now. And I think it should be said again, either practice what you preach or preach what you practice. Another you know? another interesting part of that speech was the part where he was saying was, must I be compelled to argue that a slave is a human being? We we had an interesting conversation about that last week. The, the, the proof that nobody believed that the slave wasn't a human being was the fact that they had to create a law, that they had to create right, laws, right. you know, as though, right. yeah, as though anybody ever created a law for anything but a human being. Right, but they was trying to, in order to justify the treatment, or the mistreatment of other fellow human beings, they came up with all these stories about who we were or who our ancestors were and tried to say, oh, don't feel sorry for them. They're, they're brutes. They're like uh, a step above, you know, a wild animal. So don't feel sorry for them because, you know, the first people who came over here obviously couldn't speak the language. So it, it may have seemed to outsiders that they were uh, animals, or, you know, babbling some incoherent, type noises or whatever, animal noises or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just think that was a way for them not to acknowledge their they own inhumanity, their own shortcomings. And so they came up with all these laws, but Frederick was real sharp in pointing out that if these people were as animalistic as you say, as brutish as you would have people believe, then why would you need to make laws for them if they didn't even have the brain to even comprehend the laws? You know, you don't have laws for dogs. Dogs wherever they want it. <laughs> and we and human beings, we have to pick it up. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. I mean, what kind of food would issue a summons to a dog? Right. You know, you know you're going right. to do 30 days in the clink, you know, if you don't pay this right. fine. You know. Exactly. You man. know, you can't find a dog. But that was one of the ingenious things about this this man's um, it's brilliant. perception. He was able to pierce through all the rhetoric. And you don't really see or uh, see that much these days. Because a lot of people, a lot of politicians who, in theory, are supposed to be speaking for us as black people are, you know, have been paid off. A lot of them have. Yeah. You know, not all of them, but, you know, some of them have and, and, and a lot of them. But, you know, the thing that's real encouraging, at least for me, in the current demonstrations and whatnot that are taking place is that you have a lot of young people who are educated. They know who Frederick Douglass is. They know of this speech that we referencing right now and talking about right now. And that's the most encouraging thing because I didn't know. And, you know, while I was standing on the corner, I had no idea who Frederick Douglass was. Yeah. I had no real sense of what slavery was either. Right. And that's that's really uh, uh, kind of tragic. That's that's definitely the fault it. of the educational lack or the lack of educational yeah. system, I should call it. The miseducational system. Right. It's miseducation system. Yeah, that's exactly. I think that's a proper way to say it. Yeah, I think that's. We was talking another day or last week or so about you know the value, how somebody could come to you as a young person because over here they teach you the value of money. They teach you what they want you to value. So somebody came to you and said, "I give you this five dollar bill for that ten dollar bill." As a six seven year old, you know that's not a good deal. <laughs> 
and the same people, the same system will ask you to give up your life mm. for a pair of Air Jordans. Mm. You say, oh, yeah, I'll take that deal. That's mm. a good deal right there. We don't have a, a, a proper value of our lives. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, part of the miseducation system, that's one of the first things that they should teach you about, intrinsic value. You know, the root word of education, educe, to bring forth that which is already there. So if you're being properly educated, the people who are in charge of, of that process is not overburdening you with all these facts. George Washington cut down the apple tree and all that. What they're trying to do is be observant and try to pull forth or bring forth your, your, your innate strengths and skills, which you would meant. But as a black person, that can't be applied because what Frederick Douglass said, you want to pretend that I'm not even a human being, let alone somebody who came to this world with a purpose. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of that stuff is uh, missing from the curriculum. Dude. Let's talk about a different type of education, the one which will hopefully lead us into uh, the musical portion of our podcast. Um, we were talking a little bit, a, a little while ago about spiritual um, awareness and and uh, uh-huh. one of the things this is this is kind of a segue. I'm I'm trying to um, inelegantly segue into the music into the music section, the music uh, portion of you. our uh, of of our podcast um, uh-huh. by talking about some of the music that has um, that has helped us to grow and to grow up spiritually. Um, and one of yeah. the first people one of the first people that comes to mind. Um, is John Coltrane. You know, I first learned yeah. about John Coltrane uh, through my boy, uh, R- Ronaldo, who turned me on to the album, My Favorite Things. And How I was old just, was that? I was 15. I want to say 15. Oh. And oh. I was just, man, I had never heard anything like that before. I mean, that's a f- mm-hmm. staunch follower of, of Miles Davis. I mean, you know, I yeah. loved Miles Davis and Clifford Brown and Alma Jamal and like Red Garland and and Wynton Kelly and all those cats, but I still love Lamar. Me too, man. Me too, man. Yeah, I, as my, still, I went to see he's, he's something like ninety. He he was eighty nine. I, I went to see him last year in uh, in Marciac, France. You know, and uh, he oh, still yeah. got it. He still got it, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got one of his most recent albums, man. It's it's powerful, man. It's, it's powerful. Dude, he's got everything under his under his command as as usual as he always has. Um, and it occurred to me that that John Coltrane though was was cut from a slightly different cloth, you know, um, because one of the things that I felt that he was always able to do was to convey the the feeling that you could actually achieve some type of spiritual growth or awareness mm-hmm. through the music that he was playing with with yeah. John and and Alice. You were like you really tuned in to. The, the 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 universal consciousness that they you know that they talked about in their music mm-hmm. and so I wanted to know and you know it was I think when when Love Supreme came along, um, that to me was when I finally realized that music could be could be meditative and 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 strengthening mm-hmm. and uh, and and sustaining spiritually. And and yeah. he even went farther than that and tied that into his his um. His identity as a as a black man. Yeah, that's definitely true. Where did that's you you know where did you first find out about Coltrane? And what were your thoughts? You know the beautiful thing about John Coltrane is is, is exactly what you're saying. 
he was already a gifted uh, player when he was playing with Miles Davis. That was a uh, legendary group, you know, that uh, quintet that they had. But John Coltrane, it was after that epic sessions before he wrote A Love Supreme. It did all this real major stuff, man. He went up in the attic in his house, just like Moses went up on that mountain. And he, he just made a decision to take his life seriously. I didn't discover John Coltrane until I arrived on death row in 
uh, Nina Simone, all, all, all these brothers and sisters, man, they're inviting us to walk on higher ground. And, and, you know, I can go in the cell right now and put on Nina Simone, and boom, I'm on the mound. Yeah. Same thing with John Coltrane. Put on the Love Supreme, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm looking at life from, from a totally different vantage point. And that's the point. Yeah, it is. You know, I don't need to know how to play uh, the saxophone. John Coltrane made that sacrifice and, and made that contribution. That's why we're here, because we got lessons to learn and contributions to make. That was his contribution. So even now, all these years later, here I am, 51 years old, sitting in the cell on death row, and yet I can put on the love supreme and be transported and also be reminded of my purpose. Because love, that's our true destiny. That's why we're here. That's right. You know, that's the thing that Martin Luther King, before he died, he said, I just wanted to be saved. It's on the eve of his death. He visioned the whole thing, it seemed like, if you listen to the last speech he gave in Tennessee. But he, you know, told his people, he said, at my funeral, I just wanted to be said that I tried to love somebody. And that's what Coltrane was saying over and over again in the Love Supreme. You know, it's words to that. And he was playing those words, and he was just talking about love is, God is. So, yeah, that's a powerful piece, man, the Love Supreme. Then, powerful piece, probably I, one of the most powerful pieces of music in history. I agree, man. Mind, anyway. I agree, and you know, I was—I think it was through John Coltrane that I also re realized the connectedness. I, you know, he, he kind of got me on my on, on the realization of of the connectedness of all things. That that's really what spiritual consciousness, or or what mm -hmm. they called universal consciousness, is really about. To me, the definition of universal consciousness is the awareness that we are all connected. And I think that I'm going to take it even a step farther and, and say that if you believe that we have even undergone any slight evolutionary processes in our time here on Earth, I would say mm -hmm. that probably the, the most recent evolutionary process that we've undergone is kind of like an awareness, a, a kind of a, a sense um, that we are all connected. And I believe there are those of us who innately understand that without having to be told that if some something happens to someone in, in Turkey or in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. that it happens to us because we, we are no, we are no, you know, or in Beijing or where the coronavirus started at. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly, man. You or, know. or, or in, yeah. uh, or in uh, St. Louis, uh, Ferguson right. or, or right. in Minneapolis. With mm -hmm. what happened to George Floyd, that we are, that it happens to all of us, you know. Yeah, that's right. And this is this is kind of the thing that I feel that if there is the next evolutionary step, that this would be it, and that probably at this point there are fewer fewer of us um, than than there are those who I think don't don't see that connection, and perhaps even I might even go a step farther and just say that maybe. The, the writings about the, the, the great prophets, such as um, Jesus Christ or the Buddha, you know, you Muhammad, mm -hmm. could it maybe be said that they were among the first of that evolution, of that evolutionary process? But I mean, obviously there are many more of us now. And- um, well, Yeah, yeah, when you're talking about uh, uh, Buddha, Jesus, and uh, all these uh, learned people, people who had came to the realization, these people who have achieved a self-realization or whatever. Yeah, and, you know, you had to remember that, you know, the ancients, 
you know, those pyramids are not just buildings. That stuff is, you know, diametrically, you know, and it's set up. It was a gate, you know, according to them. So those people were operating on a on a real high level too. You know, they found in the pyramids model airplane. You know, you, you, did you know that. One <laughs> minute remaining. I'm not surprised though. <laughs> this, this is real tough, man. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, I I understand what you're saying, but what you were saying earlier about it being innate, I think we're all born with the understanding that we are connected. But I think that's what education is about, is to rob us, strip us of that, that knowledge. Yeah, I see. And so that we can become workers for these people. I see. Yeah, that makes strip sense. Because we go through all those years of education and arrive at the end of that with no understanding or appreciation about who we are to ourselves or each other. And that's the tragedy, I think, in, in, in all this, what we're talking about. But we're constantly being reminded over and over again through people like John Coltrane and people who have done the work. Because it's a lot of work. Because I'm, and I'm talking about forgetting. Thank you for using GTL. Yeah. Forgiving, indeed. I think that's a great place to end our podcast today. That's it for now. I want to thank all of you for joining, and I want to especially thank Keith Lamar for co-hosting this podcast with me. You can find out more about Keith Lamar at keithlamar.org and Justice for Keith Lamar on Facebook and Instagram. Support his struggle and learn about his case by buying his book, Condemned, on Amazon. I'm Brian Jackson, and this has been Pieces of a Man. <laughs>